You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, Ethan, and your pastors here at Free City, hey, good morning. About three and a half years ago, Will Smith was on the Stephen Colbert show, and he was quoted giving the words, racism isn't getting worse. It's getting filmed. And this week, we have seen these words manifest into reality once again. If you've been anywhere near a phone or computer, a television or newspaper, or you've even spoke with someone this week, you've undoubtedly heard the name George Floyd. And your introduction to this man was a video, a video where you witnessed the last minutes and seconds of his life, face down, helplessly handcuffed with his hands behind his back and a knee in the back of his neck, crying out for dear life, only for his voice distress to fall on deaf ears. If you saw this or you heard about it, and I'm going to assume that you have, what did you feel? What was going through your mind as you saw yet another black brother pinned in the street, shouting the words that would be his last, I can't breathe. I hope it struck a deep chord within you. I hope it lit a fire of anger deep in your soul to see another unacceptable act of evil inflicted upon an image bearer of the Most High God. I hope that also at the height of your anger, it was met with like a a deep lament, a realization that this is America. This is the world that we live in. And I hope that in all of that, it led you to your knees, pleading to the God of justice to bring just that. Church, let's get this straight. Racism in America, it's not a political thing. It's not some red or blue issue. It's not conservative or liberal. It's not Republican, Democrat, or whatever. This race issue is an us issue us being the church. By all means, friends, we must pray. We absolutely must rely on God to move in his power and transform us as a people. But more than this, we must do. We must be advocates of reconciliation. After all, we are God's people saved by Jesus created, called, empowered to be his hands and feet. And this means that we exist in the world that God has created to work for and toward his reconciling of all things. Let us be people who take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. And but instead, let us be the ones who expose these things. Let us be quick to name things unacceptable Let us be quick to name evil when they are so. Let us love one another. Let us stand with our brothers and sisters. And think about these events. 
What if it was your son in that video? What if it was your father or your uncle with a knee in the back of his neck? Would you at that point remain silent? Friends, let us repent. I want to raise my hand as high as anyone else, myself included in this. Let us be people who repent of our ignorance and not knowing where to start. Start where you are. And speak in the circles that you reside in. Look for opportunities to use your voice and then act. If a shamelessly wicked phone call from a woman named Amy Cooper could call to action through lies, how much more can the people of God call to action through truth? May God open our eyes to injustice and may he empower us in prayer, in voice, in action to be advocates of reconciliation through the power of the gospel that's alive and active within us. And I actually think this propels and and situates us right into Paul's words in today's text. If you have a Bible, today we are in Ephesians 4, verses 25 through chapter 5, verses 2. Ephesians 4, 25 through 5, 2. And it's in this fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus that he begins to deal with Christian conduct or the way of, of Christian living. And as we've covered already, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has in the beginning unpacked doctrine, all that God has done for us in Jesus, namely making us his and drawing us into a family together, different races, different backgrounds, divides, unified in and through Jesus to become a new people, to become his church. And then in chapter 4, Paul moves on to the practical application of this teaching. So Paul, first in the book, clarified the foundation. He's unpacked this gospel message. And it's from this foundation that he explains the ethics, the principles for living what we now do. So the gospel not only saves us, it through this, it is also, it's not only the power to save us, but it is through this power that every aspect of our life is now transformed. So in order for us to properly understand today's text and and really the rest of this letter altogether, we must constantly look back to Ephesians 4, verse 1. And this is the transition of the book, really. Listen to this. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here Paul is essentially saying, take all that I've said, all that I've prayed for you, believe it, and let this belief propel your living. You see, contrary to what you may have been raised in or told, The gospel is not a message of salvation to receive and remain idle. The gospel is the glorious message that you were once without God, leading a hopeless life, but God, through Christ, at once changed everything. 
through Jesus' blood shed up on the cross and through his resurrection, you are no longer hopeless, but you are now a slave-turned-son recipient of endless hope. You have a glorious future and a redefined present reality. And all of this is grace. An unearned gift received and you did nothing to receive it. So this is the news that calls and by the spirit of the living God empowers you to action. It's this news that then begins to motivate every part of our lives. Changes the way that we care for others, the way that we now see our job. Changes the way we see our money and spend it. The way that we interpret our life story. The gospel becomes the looking glass to which we now see everything for everything has been redefined. And this is absolutely countercultural. Salvation has come to you. You don't gain salvation by what you do. You see, culture and, and many religions in the world proclaim a message that you're saved by what you do. Think about that. Society, the society we live in, preaches this message of salvation by way of doing the right thing. Be a nice person, give money to the right places, stand up for the right people, shop at the right stores, boycott the right stores. Atone for your sins, so to speak. But how exhausting is that? Living from a belief that, that you will only be made right or seen right, or whatever it may be, if you perform in the right arena, in the right way at the right time. But what if your living was completely redefined? What if you actually found rest in the news that in Christ, your right standing before God is sure, and it doesn't hinge on what you have or have not done? What if you really believe that salvation by grace, if salvation comes to you by grace through faith in Christ, Alone. Period. How might that change the rest of your life? I would assume that it would drastically change your actions. Instead of being rooted in the anxieties of having to perform, your efforts would actually flow from a foundation of grace. Peaceful souls exhibiting trust and thankfulness for the grace that they've received. I think it would radically transform the way in which you speak. I think it would change the way you work and, and open your hands to be radically generous. I think it would give you clarity into issues and situations to know when to fight and when to fold. I think it would give you greater discernment and prudence to see divisions and possible footholds and to fight for unity within the body of Christ. And within it all, I think it would empower us to speak the gospel message as we live it. Friends, this is important. Paul is not simply attempting to persuade some higher standard of morality. Paul is drawing back to what has already taken place, that you have been made a new person. And he says, now in light of that, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here's what Christ has done. Believe this. And live from that belief. What do you believe? 
in her? What do your actions say that you believe? Because this is the main idea for today. Our actions are fueled by our beliefs. Our actions are fueled by our beliefs. So today, as we look at Ephesians 4, starting in 25, we're really going to break the text down into four parts, and it's just going to go right along with how Paul talks. The first part will be really verse 25, when Paul talks about put away falsehoods and and speak the truth. Second part, we're going to talk about anger. Don't let your anger be sinful, 26 and 27. We're going to talk about stealing and working and really greed in the midst of that in verse 28. And then finally, we're going to talk about speech in verse 29. But as we get to it, there are a few notes to make about each of these sections. In each command, uh, really these are, are grounded in how we are to live as a community of people. With each quality mentioned, each section, there's an aspect of of what it would look like for a unified people within this church. And Paul makes it clear that the examples of these behaviors, they'll either lead to the unity or the division within the body of Christ, to strengthening or to destroying. And then each example contains a warning with a, a command, a putting off, if you will, with the putting on. So let's get to it. Look at verse 25 as we look at Ephesians 4. So we look at truth. Paul writes this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of another, one another. Paul begins this section by saying, the first way in which you are to put off the old self and to put on the new is to put away falsehood. In saying, having put away falsehood, Paul is saying that having put this away, the word for falsehood in this text is really just the lie. And so simply, one way to think about this is for the, the church at Ephesus, as they put away the lie, they put away serving false gods. They lived the lie and they put on truth as they came to know Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's from this identity that they're empowered to live and to put away lying, to speak the truth, always. Look at the end of verse 25. It says this, For we are members of one another. So we are to cultivate truthfulness within our family. Think about what a lie is. A lie is an an intentionally false story. And consider how often lies are constructed to preserve self. One way or another, they're they're really put together to protect me, right? Self. To prop yourself up, to save your own back, so on. Think about that. So a, a lie is often about intentionally, although not always intentionally. It may not necessarily be cognitive. It's about kind of an isolating self. Consider what Paul's saying here. He says, put away falsehood and speak truth. After all, you're not alone. We're in this together. Consider the safety that we might feel if we let that sink in. 
If we realize the, the foundation that Paul has talked about in chapters 1 through 3, we'd realize that we're not alone. That once we were, once we were cut off from God and alienated, but now in Christ, we've been brought near to God, adopted as his children. And in Christ, we're drawn together as a family. You're no longer alone. You're no longer alone. And it's from this reality that Paul is instructing us to stop lying, to put away falsehood. So where you once uttered falsehood and you're standing on uncertain ground, you now can boldly speak truth due to the firm foundation that you've been given. Knowing that your identity is held by Christ and that you've been given now also a family that shares in that same identity. You no longer have to self-protect because your family, they're there for you. And this family is secure because it's not held by willpower. It's not held together or unified by the will, but it's held together by the blood of Jesus. If we really believe this reality, how might it change our living? And I bet we'd be quicker to confess when we've uttered falsehoods. I bet we would be quicker to call out those falsehoods and help our brothers and sisters when they fall prey to the temptation of returning to the ways of self-protecting lies. We might actually care enough to take time and simply speak truth to one another. We talked about this a few weeks back. Speaking the truth in love. Truth because we've been saved by the God who is truth and delights in truth and love because of the great love that we've received in Jesus. You see, as our lives are redefined by Christ and his spirit, we're empowered to step toward one another. So instead of speaking lies or allowing our brothers and sisters to do so, we speak truth. And consider Proverbs 27, 6. It says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Have you ever experienced this working out in real time? Like, have you ever lied and, and been caught? But instead of, of that feeling of, of being caught, like when you lied to your parents as a teenager, the, the person that caught you in gentleness and strength called your bluff? Like, they stepped out faithfully toward you, pulled you back in, drew you in to remind you that you have a place here, that there's no longer need for that self-protection? How many of you have friends who, who take part in, in sinful behavior and you just maybe sit back and you watch it happen? You don't technically partake. Like, you'd be clean and free, clear, whatever, if, if you know, there was something brought against you but you're sure as heck not speaking out against it. And how much harm do we inflict by keeping silent on matters that require truth? How much division and damage do we allow to, to nurse and, and just coddle up by playing it safe as to not ruffle someone's feathers? Putting away falsehoods doesn't simply mean stop lying. It, it also means Stop being silent on issues that require truth. 
And I said this at the beginning of the video. On the issue of racism in America, how many of us have watched video after video or heard story upon story of unacceptable evil committed toward our black brothers and sisters? Perhaps for uncertainty in what to say, we've kept silent. You see, our, our silence on the matter actually establishes the culture and the grounds for which these wicked acts against image bearers of God may continue. If, if we really believed the security that we have in the gospel, we would speak truthfully. We'd be quicker to inquire when we feel that there's a falsehood among our friends because we're family of grace. And this family creates space to step toward one another and possibly be wrong. We'd also begin to open our mouths where we've once remained silent because we, we actually want the truths of God to flow into the uncertainty that is the world. And here's the thing. As we even think about community here in our church, city groups, those types of things, this is the perfect place for this way of living to start taking place. So how might our church look different if, if we were this kind of people? Committed to putting off lying and falsehoods, standing on truth. Look at verse 26 and 27. The text then turns to the issue of anger. It says this in verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Look at the first part of that text. It says, be angry and do not sin. So don't let your anger be sinful. If you have some familiarity with the Bible, you're aware that there is a righteous anger and then stated here, there's a sinful anger. Ephesians 4.26 is permissive of the righteous anger. Be angry and do not sin. It speaks of this. And this is pictured in, really, Jesus in Matthew 21 when he walks in the temple and, and he starts flipping tables. He exhibits a righteous indignation toward the defilement of the temple of God. But then there's a sinful anger. We're warned of this. But also in the book of James, it's talked about. In James 1, verse 19 and 20, it says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So this is James actually instilling wisdom to us. He's saying, open your ears, listen, guard your tongue, slow your anger. Why? Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So there's something to a, a self-control of sorts and having a, a clear enough head to be able to sort out the offense. And it, and it seems that this is often, although not exclusively, slow anger. Let me give a, a couple examples. This week, my wife Skye and I set our daughter Blythe down and explained to her what happened as George Floyd was mur murdered. 
We also explained what Amy Cooper attempted in, in making that deceitful phone call. And coupled with our explanation was an exhortation to Blythe that she would be angry about these acts. You see, we want our daughter to see people the way that, the way that God sees them. And for that to happen, there must be a kindling fire of deep anger within her because she foundationally knows that people have value. It's not a, a quick, quick anger, but an anger that is learned as she learns the heart of her heavenly father. A righteous anger, this is what we want her to possess. But also in this week, I was talking with a friend regarding the same events. And he recounted that what he felt as he watched the video of George Floyd crying out for help. An anger in a moment. Quick-wicked, quickly provoked and called by this abominable cruelty that he witnessed. So there are moments, probably most circumstances actually, according to James, where righteous anger is a slow anger. However, let us not compartmentalize this anger exclusively to the time frame in which it steeps. And one reason that I believe we can allow for this space, the space for this to take point, is, is because of the first point that we talked, truth. We need to be a people who put away falsehood and speak truth, caring enough to correct and for the one being corrected to listen if we're in the wrong. But anger also has a sinful side. And in that sinful side, it can be too fast or too slow. It's often manifests in, in the form of kind of a, an attacking and a, and a withdrawing. There's two ways that we see anger manifest. Consider how anger presents itself in your life. Does it kind of cause you to blow your top, leave the room and, and everything else in the wake of your fury? Or, or do you simply skate into the other room, maybe slam the door on your way there and nurse your temper? This is why Paul gives us a, a timeline, if you will, to our anger. Look at the middle of that text. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is a press for us to, to actually evaluate and engage with our anger. This is unnatural, right? The natural disposition is, is when you get mad, you stay there till kingdom come. But don't let the sun go down on your anger is Paul's press for us to deal with this anger and to warn us. Look at the end of verse 27. He warns us of this. Give no opportunity to the devil. This is saying that when you hold on to your anger, Satan has a place to hold on to you. Righteous anger. Here's the thing about righteous anger. Righteous anger leaves the space for lament. Pleading with God to bring about justice. Sinful anger, self-concerned destroys the family of God and swings wide open the gates of our community to welcome Satan to come into our midst and set up shop. There's a fine line between righteous anger and sinful anger. 
Now, what if we were a people rooted and grounded in the gospel? If we were people who spoke the truth to one another, even when it's uncomfortable. And if we were a people who glorified God with a righteous anger and, and repented when our anger turned to sin. Look at verse 28. So we get to the third point. Paul writes about stealing and work. He says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So to the thief, stop stealing and work. Theft, ultimately, though, it has to do with greed, right? The selfish desire for what you don't have. So this statement is, is extremely plausible. We should easily agree with Paul, don't steal, instead, work. However, I'm afraid that often in looking at this verse, we stop right there. And we miss the entire second half of the sentence. And if this is the case, I think it regularly is, we've been deceived into believing that simply because we're working, we're in the clear, free from greed. We're often fooled that the thief is the greedy one. The problem is that greed is defined as the intense and selfish desire for something, especially power, wealth, or food. And given that interpretation, we are greed, I'm sorry, given that interpretation, greed is not only present in theft, but also widely apparent in our work. So look at verse 28 again. All of it. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see the ending of that? After the comma so, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And John Piper in his book, Desiring God, actually comments on, on this specific text. And here's what he says. He says, there are three levels of how to live with things. You can steal to get, or you can work to get, or you can work to get in order to give. Too many of us, self-included, have habituated ourselves in level two. However, if we are to, to put off, and I mean completely put off, the old and put on the new, we would realize that the Bible actually and relentlessly calls us to level three. My wife and I are in a season of, of premarital counseling. We're closing the book on a couple sessions that really have moved from premarital counseling to marital counseling thanks to the pandemic status and eloped weddings. But the last session in counseling is over the topic of financial stewardship. And, and it's actually always the, the session where, you know, almost I kind of get to a place where it's like, we've done this for so many weeks and I'm ready to be done and I think they're ready to be done. But it's the kind of session where we almost feel like people start to blow it off. However, when we begin to talk about money, it, it often becomes 
the session where the curtain is actually pulled back to reveal true loves, beliefs that feel living. We spend a fair amount of time talking about generosity and thankfulness in the session, two values really that are worth cultivating to keep you from serving money. And as we talk about it, we always come to a quote that says this. It's by Tim Keller, and he says this. The only way we can be free from the power of money and to be sure that we are free and not self-deluded is to give money away so much that we lower our living standards. Each time I read that quote aloud, I just simply ask, hey, what do you think about this statement? And almost every time that I ask that question, the initial response is something along the lines of, man, I hate that. Why don't we like this idea? Like, as I read that, as you heard it, maybe you felt the same thing in your soul. Maybe you thought, man, I hate that statement. But here's the thing. A good hermeneutic to apply when reading the Bible is that when something bothers you, the problem inevitably lies with you. So you see, we we build our lives around a false reality that we have worked our way for everything that we own. The problem is with this construct that it completely overlooks the reality of who has provided you the ability to work and whose world we exist in. It's only when we begin to see everything as a gift from God that we can be moved toward generosity and thankfulness. Our belief must be reformed in order for our living to follow. The good news of the gospel is that God has made a way through Jesus for money to be dethroned in our lives. We no longer have to be fueled by greed because the intensity of our longings are satisfied in Christ. So when we work, it doesn't simply end with what we get. We in turn get to provide for others manifesting the kindness of God as beneficiaries of grace. Some months back, we preached through a series called Meals with Jesus, and and one week in particular, we covered the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus from Luke 19. Zacchaeus, I'm sure you're familiar, the wee little man. He was a chief tax collector. He was filthy rich, fueled by greed. Everyone hated him for this. But what happened to Zacchaeus? If you're familiar with the story, what happened with him? He met Jesus. And Jesus changed everything. And as Jesus gave Zacchaeus a new identity, Zacchaeus put off the old self and on the new, the man who once stole for selfish gain now has his hands open in regard to generosity. When speaking of this, In his commentary on Ephesians, John Stott writes, none but Christ can transform the burglar into the benefactor. What a powerful thing. Do you see that? Our actions are fueled by our beliefs. So what would it be like if, if we actually spoke the truth to one another? What if we didn't allow space for Satan to gain ground in our lives through our anger? What if generosity 
flowed from us? And what if it was so grand that it demanded an explanation and we regularly had the stage to share the message of God's generosity to us in Christ? Look at verse 29 So we move on to talk about speech. Verse 29, Paul writes this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There's something huge here that we must not miss. Your words matter. You know the saying, like you heard it on the playground when you were growing up, sticks and stones, they break my bones. But your words, they'll never harm me, or whatever version you sang. Let's be real about that. It's garbage. It's a frail shield in an attempt to deflect words that actually do have power to cut and divide our souls. Paul knows this. He's warning us of this. Like, how many of you feel condemnation on a regular basis? And how many feel this said condemnation because of the words that were spoken to you or over you? Words that were spoken 10 20, 30 years ago. Venomous talk that was applied over and over and over. Rhetoric intended to shred you to bits, leaving you less human. Words matter. Words have power to build up or words have power to tear down. Notice Paul says, let no corrupting talk. His word choice here is is one that means and, and is used for, applied to, fruit that is rotting. So when Paul is conveying that there is a, a type of speech that corrupts things, he's saying there's a type of speech that rots away. But in contrast, for the one who's been transformed by Jesus, their words should build people up. They should be filled with grace. Consider Proverbs 12 Verse 18 says this, For there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And how would people describe you? Do you take the time to sharpen your tongue, to divide, to harm? Or do your words impart grace and healing? Before we planted Free City Church, I was on staff at a a church in Oklahoma City. And the lead pastor there, his name's Hans Dilbeck. Hans is uh, absolutely a man that embodies this text. Being on staff with him for a few years, I I would regularly get to be around him. I'd get to go to lunch with him or hang in his office or he'd swing by and hang in mine. And and, and he's just the kind of guy that you just want to be around him. And I think the thing about him, like the thing that was so alluring and is so alluring about his presence is that he is unyielding in his commitment to build up the body of Christ. I witnessed like so many times of conflict. We'd be in staff meetings and someone would be kind of, you know, conflicted and talking at one another. People may be upset. 
And he would, in gentleness, speak truth to those situations, call them back together. Or, or people I would hear of, of people who were upset because of the, the direction that he was moving us, which to be upset with the way that Hans was moving us was crazy because he moves so slow and is so thoughtful and wise. But people would be upset with him because of the decisions that he made. And he never said anything bad about him. He had plenty of opportunity. Like, this is 2,500 plus people. Like, there is a sea of people, a sea of voices coming at him, waves crashing over him. I never heard anything. I spent a lot of time with him, formal and informal, and I don't recall him ever using his tongue to harm. But I know many times where I would go to him and I would voice my concerns. I would use my tongue as a weapon toward those who had offended me. And he would time and time again gently speak truth to me. He'd pull me out of my anger, out of my frustration, refocus my eyes onto the unity of the body of Christ. I'm not saying Hans Dilbeck's a perfect man. You could talk to Julie, his wife, and I guarantee you she'll tell you he's not. But in a congregation of that size, with conflict and decisions to make and all those things, you would think at some point he's going to blow things up. You would think at some point he's, he's got something to say. People have weighed on him enough that surely he speaks. But he didn't. And what do people glean when they spend time with you? Having spent time with you, when people exit your presence, how do they feel? Controlling our tongues, it will never, never be possible until our hearts and our minds are under control, yielding to the Lordship of Jesus. Because our, our actions, they flow from our beliefs. So what would it be like if we were a people so committed to loving one another as we spoke truth? What would it be like if we dealt with our anger in ways that magnified Jesus and if we worked and the fruit of our labor didn't end with us, but it provided to those in need? And then what if we were a people to establish an atmosphere of grace no matter where we are with the words that we speak? And think about your neighborhood, your family, your workplace. How much different would those spaces be if you lived in this way? If your living was fueled by the reality of the transformation that the gospel has brought in your life? And what if we began to realize that our actions are to flow out of our relationship with God? If we would grow in the understanding that our living it is not merely duty, but it's meant to be delight. We would love God. We'd take Him at His word. We'd honor Him with our lives as to not, as verse 30 says, as to not grieve the Holy Spirit. And then we'd put off as verse 31 says, which was really just a repeating, a recapping of the things that we've covered. We'd put off bitterness and wrath, 
anger and clamor and slander. We'd be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Because we're good people? No. Because God in Christ has forgiven you. You see how belief in that fuels life? Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. For anyone who believes in Jesus, you have a heavenly father. You are God's child. Jesus has loved us and gave himself up for us. He did this as he died on the cross. And it's from here that Paul calls us to be a passionate community that loves and sacrifices for one another. So how do we do all these things? We do this all by faith. Faith that's given by trusting that God is who he says he is. That he who is true empowers you to stand in truth. That because you've been forgiven, you don't have to be angry. You don't have to lie or speak falsities. And the way you obey God is to trust Him. And you, you cling to Him. You hold fast to Jesus, for He's your hope. And you walk in love. And this love, it's been given to you through Christ, namely at the cross, and poured into your heart through Spirit of God. And it's from this love that we can and are empowered to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To put on the new life and to take off the old. Jesus makes us a new people. He changes everything about us and it's through this belief. It's through faith in him that we are empowered to live. Our actions are fueled by our belief. So today in closing... How do your beliefs need to be transformed? What part of the gospel do you need to see and believe more clearly to propel your living? Maybe today you would open yourself up to to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, to just simply search you and, and, and maybe you would ask him to reveal to you where your beliefs don't line up with the message of the gospel. And in doing that, maybe I would just ask that you would take that a step further. That if you're in a, in a house church this morning, then maybe you would invite community in. Maybe the, the people sitting around the room with you. And, and if you're not, that, that you would think of people in your head right now. And those would be people that you apply this. That you would invite community in, the people of God, that you would invite them into that work. They would help you in this effort that they would be empowered you to open yourself that they would be empowered to speak truth to you in love and to point you to Jesus let me pray for us Father we do ask that you would make us a people like this 
that you would give us boldness in our living, not because we've worked up some kind of strength to prove people wrong, not because we need to be seen as tougher than we are, but you would put a boldness in us and a strength in us because we are people who have been radically transformed by your gospel. So would you open the eyes of our hearts to wherever unbelief may be in our lives. And that in identifying that unbelief, we'd bring it to the surface, we'd confess it, we'd repent for it, and we'd say, Jesus, change us. Holy Spirit, change us. Stir my affections. Align my heart to be like yours. Give me eyes to see things the way you do. I want to love people, things like you do. So Holy Spirit, empower us even now. Give us power to to love Jesus with all that we are. In his name, amen. Free City, see you soon.